thank David and Jossie and Lee and, and Brian for uh, leading us this weekend. You know, Brian, thank you, man. It's a huge commitment for, for these guys to play, and we appreciate them uh, so very much. So thanks for them. And this is the traveling season, I guess. Uh, people are vacationing. I know uh, David, who's just around the corner, I know he and his wife, they just got back from Hawaii. They had a nice trip there. She just graduated, and so they were enjoying that. And um, let's see, what else? And then uh, Ken and Pastor Ken and Susan are in New Zealand right now, and Pastor Bill is leaving this afternoon for Hawaii, so that's got to be nice. And, um, and then let's see, uh, uh, Phil and Danielle Carter, who are often up here on the weekends leading, are in India. If you've been following them, they are adopting their third child from India. And we have been praying for this a year and a half. So they are there and they're getting their child and we're very, very excited for them as well. And uh, I'm taking a little time. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to Skamania tomorrow um, for, for breakfast. And <laughs> so yeah, I'm pretty, pretty excited. And then we have like the prom, did you notice we have like the prom court right here? Like they're, they're like bringing up the standard of dress. I'd ask them to stand, but I'm sure they don't want to. Do you want to, do you want to, no, they, no, okay, I won't, I won't do it. I won't do it. I told them somebody has to class up this place because it's not going to be me. So anyways, we're glad to have you here. We are in a series called Keeping It Weird. And um, we told you the very first week, it's not making it weird or getting weird. Or, it's not our job. God has made us weird. Our job is just not to try to be normal again. So we, we talked that very first week. We, we said there's really two paths that you can take in life. There's the, there's the broad path, the wide path. There's the narrow path. And the Bible says the, the broad path is the path that most people are on. And um, then there's the narrow path that leads to life. And what we said that very first week is you don't get yourself off that path. That's something that God does for you. When he finds you and when you respond to him, he takes you off the path, the broad path. That leads to death. He puts you on the narrow path, the path that leads to life. God does that for you. And now God just says, don't go back. Don't go back to that place. Now the temptation is that you're on the narrow path. There's not a lot of people on there. So you're going to be different and people are going to think you're weird. And we said that first week and that's okay because normal is not working in our world today. We'd rather be weird, weird for God, weird in a God way because that is better. So we've been, we've been talking about that. And this morning we're going to wrap it up. And the next weekend, we're going to start a new series that I'm really looking forward to. But we're going to, the, the topic we're going to start, uh, talk about this morning, I almost started the series with it. And then I thought, no, I shouldn't do that because then no one will come until the series is over. So I saved this until last. But in your notes this morning, I've noticed, uh, noted for you that there's a couple of just kind of basic ways that people think, if this makes sense to you, about life in general. Some people think of themselves as a body with a soul. Uh, in fact, most people in our, in our world today think of themselves as a body, and maybe they have a soul. Uh, so, for instance, you may know people who think of themselves as a body without a soul. Um, they think of themselves, they're a body, um, their consciousness, uh, their thoughts, their feelings are all just purely the result of biological uh, processes going on uh, in their body. It's just chemicals and all that kind of stuff, and, and they are nothing more than a body. And one day the body will die, and when the body dies, consciousness is gone, and you're, you're, you're gone forever. So, when you think of yourself as just a body, the basic idea in life is you just better get what you can while you can because when life is over, it's over and you're done. Now, studies tell us that actually most people in our world think of themselves as a body with a soul. 
They are primarily a body that also happens to have a soul. But in life, the first thing is the body. So their first priority is the body and the needs of the body and the wants of the body and the lusts of the body. And then there's the soul. And if they have any time left over, they might do some stuff for the soul. But if they have to choose between doing what's right for the soul and what's doing right for the body, well, they're always going to choose the body every single time. That's normal people. Normal people think of themselves as a body with a soul. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there's a really radically different way of thinking about life. That's what weird people do. Weird people think of themselves as a soul with a body. See, that's different. So you are not your body. You are your soul, your spirit. There is uh, essentially what you are is transcendent. Uh, It is temporarily housed in a body. Uh, But this body, at some point, will be done. It It will cease to exist but your soul will live on. And so it's really different when you think of yourself as a soul with a body, isn't it? Think about that for a minute. That means you're going you're gonna to think, you're going to prioritize. Your focus in life is going to be what's best for my soul. And the body will often come second. Now, normal people, therefore, um, focus on the physical part of life, the material part of life, the body part of life. But weird people, we focus on the inside. Our main focus is to keep our soul clean, to keep our soul healthy, to keep our soul connected with the one who made it, because it's our soul that defines who we are. It's our soul that will live on forever. What's the problem that rages against the soul? That problem is sin. Um, Sin is the thing that messes up the soul. And to, to, to sin basically means to miss God's mark. That's what the word means uh, in the Bible. It means to miss God's mark for our life. It's, it's when we stray from God's will for our life. It's when we stray from his will in our relationships, when I stray from God's will in my marriage, when I stray from God's will for the words that come out of my mouth, for the way I use my money, for the things I think about. When we stray from God's will and God does have a will for us, he does have a standard for us. When we stray from that, that is sin. Now, normal people, the way they approach sin is this. They want to just cover it up, right? Because basically it's not really about what's inside. It's about the body. So people who are normal, they just basically want to cover up their sin. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Sometimes they'll just deny the existence of sin. They'll say, I don't believe in sin. There's no, there are no absolutes. Um, so therefore, there's no sin. What's right for me may be wrong for you, but that's okay. It's all situational. Or they might rationalize their sin. Well, you know, I, just, I, I didn't mean to do it or I had good intentions. Or, or they'll rationalize it or they'll just try to hide it. But weird people are different. Weird people don't try to cover up their sin. Weird people don't try to rationalize their sin. Weird people don't try to explain their sin away. That's not what they do. Weird people just confess it, all right? So that's different. Weird people, they say it. Weird people, they admit it. Weird people, they get it out in the open. Weird people, they deal with their sin. That's what I want to talk about today. Now, there are, uh, there's a normal approach to sin, and there's plenty of examples in the Bible, and, and plenty of examples probably of people that you know that have sinned, and the response was they did everything they could to cover up their sin, and you know how that complicates their situation. Now, in the Bible, I want to tell a story about a guy named David, and the reason I'm using David is because the Bible says that David was a man who was after God's own heart. So, so David was not a loser in any way you know, uh, that we think of. He was actually quite a spiritual guy. He's a guy who loved God, and God loved him. But David, just like we do at times, David sinned. 
And I want us to notice a, a particular story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a story you're probably familiar with. Um, it starts in verse 1. It says, now in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, okay, that's a little different from us in the spring when we get one week of nice weather and then we're depressed for two months, or that's just me. Um, and, but the spring for the, in Israel was a little bit different, right? During the winter time, and it was cold. And during the wintertime, nations, they would kind of hunker down and, and kings would just spend time with their council and their leaders and their army, and they would make plans. And then in the spring, when the weather started to turn around, it started to get warm and the sun came out, they would kind of go and they would, you know, make sure that all their borders were protected. And if any nation kind of came in on their borders in the spring is when they'd push them back or they say try to push them back. Uh, maybe they want to expand their kingdom in the springtime is when they do that. Spring is when the kings went to war. And so it says that at the time when the kings would go off to war, David sent Joab, that was the commander of his army, and he sent him out with the king's men. And the whole Israelite army. So they go out and they're going to do battle. And they destroy the Ammonites. So in the spring, they're going to war in this particular time against the Ammonites. And they besieged a city of the Ammonites called uh, Reba. But, but David remained in Jerusalem. All right, so the, they, they've kind of w- pretty much wiped out the Ammonites, but they have them cornered in this one city and they're besieged in the city, right? Which means that the city probably had walls and they were within the walls and they're protected by the walls, but they just kind of got surrounded by the Israelites and now they're just going to wait them out. Or maybe the Israelites are going to try to take the walls down, but they're just waiting there. And, and notice what it says. Now, one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around. Now, David is supposed to be out with his army. That's what a king does in the spring. He goes with his army to go to war. David's not with his army. The question becomes, why isn't David with his army? And there's all sorts of, you know, ideas, and I'm not interested in that. The point is, David wasn't where he was supposed to be. So, you know, that means he is where he's not supposed to be. And he's, he's got nothing to do. He's, he's bored. So one night, he's out. Um, and he's walking around on the roof of his palace. His palace is on a hill and it's looking down on the city. And David's up there and he's just kind of looking around at his city. And from the roof, he saw something unusual. We think it was unusual for David. We don't know. He saw a woman who was bathing. All right. So she is up on her rooftop. And, and it may be that there was kind of a skirt around the rooftop so other people couldn't see it. But David was up higher and David can see her. Now, of course, at this point, what we'd expect from David being a man of God is that he would be like, oh, you know, oops, I, sorry. And he'll stumble into his palace and, you know, do something. I don't know what, you know, have a cold shower or something. But he'd get away from the, the, from the rooftop, it says. But now the woman was very beautiful. So they're just kind of pointing this out to us. The woman was beautiful and, and David sent someone to find out about her. So, okay, so we're just like already red flags going up, right? You understand this is not a a great path for David to go down. Why would he be having someone go check up on her? Well, anyways, the man knows who she is. The guy says, well, isn't that Bathsheba? Like, in other words, he's like, well, we all know who she is. She's actually famous. She's well-known because she's so absolutely beautiful. So he says, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam? And then he says this, and the wife key, red flag, going up there, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, right? Do you understand the force? And the wife, and the wife, David, of Uriah the Hittite, right? So, you know, hands off, get away, don't think about her, get off the rooftop. And then David sent messengers. So he's just obsessing, focused on this thing, this lust of the flesh, this lust of the eyes, and he sent messengers to get her. So he's the king, and he's powerful, and he sends messengers, and she came to him. Now, I don't know what's going on in her mind. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing, but she slept with the king, 
And then she went back home. And you, you, you might think so. Tragic story. Terrible story. David made some really, really bad choices. And then the next verse is actually, when you think about it, really shouldn't be surprising at all. And the woman conceived, shocker. And she, you know, what, what are the chances? Well, probably really good, all right? And she sent word to David saying, she sent some, some, some words that would change his life. I am pregnant. All right, so what does David do with his sin? Does David drop to his knees? Does David confess his sin? Does David say, I cannot believe what I'm, I've done. I was in a place I shouldn't have been, and I knew that, and I went down that road, and I saw a woman, and I kept looking at her, and I shouldn't have done that. I sent messengers, and I shouldn't have done that. I slept through her, and I shouldn't have done that. I cannot believe what I've done. I messed up my life. I've messed up her life. He gets on his knees, sackcloth and ashes, the whole thing, right? Is that what he does? And it's absolutely not what he does. David decides, I got to cover this up. Nobody can find out what I've done. I got to cover it up. So he comes up with a plan A, just a, a crazy plan. He decides, well, you know, her husband is out on the battlefield, right? And um, if, if she's pregnant, then everyone's going to know it wasn't him. So he comes up with a plan and he sends a messenger to get her husband, Uriah, and says, oh, the king needs to see you. So he gets Uriah, you got to come right away. So Uriah comes back to Jerusalem. He goes to see the king and the king's like, you know, hey, how's it going, Uriah? Sit down, you know, take a, you know, take a load off and you need something to drink and have a little snack. And he's just making small talk with Uriah because that's really not what this is about. Then at, at, at the end, he's like, you know, how's the battle going and what's going on, all that stuff. And then when it's done, he says to Uriah, well, you know, it's a long way back to the battlefield and you don't want to go tonight, so you should just go home for, for the night, right? Just go home. I mean, you know, you're a guy. You've been on the battlefield. You've been away from your wife. You can have a good meal, sleep in your own bed, be with your wife. I mean, right, who wouldn't want to do that? Because I've heard she's beautiful, you know? So you got to go and you spend some time with her. And so you just go. So of course, you know what David's hoping. David's hoping he'll go and he'll, and he'll sleep with his wife and then she'll tell you later she's pregnant and he'll think it's, it's his child and everything will be great, you know? And David will have covered up his sin. Unfortunately, what happens the next morning is David finds out that Uriah didn't go home. Uriah made it partway home and then he, he found a bunch of servants of the king and he slept on the floor with them that night. So the next morning, David's like, dude, you know, what are you doing? And Uriah says, oh man, all of my fellow soldiers, they're out on the field. Now they're sleeping on the ground. They're sleeping in tents. They're eating, you know, army food. They're fighting the battle. It would be absolutely wrong for me to go into my home, you know, to use my shower, I'd sleep in my bed and my, with my wife when all of these guys are out fighting the battle. I can't do that to them. So I just felt like this was the wrong thing to do. I was just going to wait. Now today I'm going to go back out. So of course David's like, oh, this plan is not working, right? So he says, hey, no, 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 before you come back, uh, come have dinner with me tonight. So David invites him for another night to come have dinner, have some dinner. David makes sure he has lots of wine, gets him drunk. David's thinking he's drunk. He'll go home. He'll be with his wife. You know, he might sleep with her. He might not. He'll never know. He's drunk. And, you know, everything will come out and the end will be fine. Well, story goes, he doesn't make it all the way home that night. He ends up sleeping with the servants again. And David realizes this isn't going to work. So he comes up with a plan B. Plan B is he sends, uh, he sends Uriah back out to the battlefield. And then he sends a message to Joab, the king of the army. And he says this. He says, here's what I want you to do tomorrow. I got to get rid of this guy. So I want you to put him at the front of the army. And I want you to, to march on the find the strongest defended place in the, in the wall of the city, and I want you to attack that place. And I want you to put Uriah in the front. And when the battle really gets raging and there's a lot of stuff going on, I want you to ditch Uriah. Just don't tell him and just leave. And then he'll be struck down. 
That's his plan. That, that, that's what he's going to do. And so, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were, just like David said. And when the men of the city came out and they fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. And, and moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David, in his attempt to cover up his sin, has only made things worse and added sin to sin to sin which is always what happens when we try to conceal and we will not confess. David writes a little bit about this concept in Psalm 38. He says this. He's writing to God. He's he's writing about uh, being in a state of unconfessed sin. And he says, because of your wrath, he's writing to God, because of your anger, there is is no health in my body. And, And my bones have no soundness, notice, because of my what? Because of my sin. David says... I have sinned and I did not confess the sin. And here's what happened. He says, because of that, there's no health in my body and my my bones have no soundness and my guilt has overwhelmed me. It's like a burden that's just, it's too much, David says, for me to, to carry. He says, because of my sin, my soul condition, he says, my body has been affected. Do you think that ever happens? You think it ever happens that when we sin and we hide it and we conceal it and we won't confess it, that it can affect our body? David says, I have no soundness in my bones. He says, you know what? I'm not sleeping well. (laughs) I go to bed at night and I'm not sleeping well. And so during the day, I'm not feeling too good. I'm getting moody. I'm getting grouchy. I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm tired. I'm anxious. It's not going for well. What he says is it's a burden too heavy to bear. In other words, you were never designed by God to carry that kind of weight. There's no provision for you. God's not going to be like, I'll give you some special strength to carry that sin that you're holding inside. God says that's not the way this works. See, when we try to hide our sin, it weighs on our soul. And some of you are here this morning, and, and you know what I'm talking about because you're carrying a weight right now. It's weighing you down. It, it made me think of um, back when I was in grade school, and every year I grew up in L.A., my family and I, we used to go to Chinatown, and, and, um, and we would go kind of walk up and down the streets and, you know, the different vendors and look around and have some food. And one year, I, I don't know, I think maybe I was in the fourth grade or somewhere around there. I don't know why I did it. I'd never done it before. I've never done it since. But we were kind of walking down these streets looking at these vendors and this stuff, and there was this one uh, set up where a bunch of toys and stuff and there was a little wooden block. You ever seen the blocks that are like all cut up and it's like a puzzle that you can take apart and try to get back together? And I don't know why, but it just, you know, it was shiny and it looked really cool. And I don't know, it was probably, a, you know, buck fifty or something. And I didn't have, you know, I was in the fourth grade, didn't have a job. And so I didn't have any money and I didn't want to ask my dad for it. I just had a different idea altogether. I thought I'd just give it to myself. And so I kind of gave myself the five finger discount. And I took it and I, I put it in my, I remember I had a windbreaker on, I put it in my windbreaker and I thought, you you know, at first I'm like, ooh, this is really cool. Like, I'm completely, I'm like a, a, a fugitive now, you know, like, like super cool. And then we're kind of hanging out there, and then I kind of noticed the shop owner was kind of looking at me, and so I was kind of getting nervous and like telling my mom, we should probably go, we should go, you know, and kind of getting anxious. And so we kind of walked. As we walked away, I, I'm pretty sure he was looking at me, and I, I think, you know, he probably got on his cell phone. There were no cell phones, but I was pretty sure, and he <laughs> called, you know, and I probably called the FBI, and they're out. So the whole rest of the day, everywhere we went, I was nervous and I was anxious. Someone was going to catch me. Someone was going to find out. And, uh, and that was a very, very uh, not enjoyable day for me. And in fact, in the end, I did get caught. Uh, was, that's a whole other story. Uh, but I tell you, you, maybe you've experienced that, the weight 
the anxiety, the, the, the concern. What, what if people find out? I've told you the last few weeks that, that studies right now for Americans, they're showing some really um, not good things. Like most men, 70, 80% of men and 30% of women, studies say right now, are getting on the internet and looking at sexually explicit material that they should not be looking at. Now, I don't know if that's you, but chances are if it is you, you may be trying to keep that secret. You may be thinking, man, I don't want anyone to find out. I don't want anyone to know. If anyone finds out, what would they think of me? You know, well, maybe they'll reject me. It could hurt my marriage or whatever. And so you, you're, you're carrying this burden. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's getting near the end of school and, and I had somebody confess yesterday that they just cheated on a test and maybe you've cheated on a test recently or maybe you're planning on cheating on a test or, or, or cheating on a paper and, and uh, you're just carrying again. You, you've decided I'm going to cover that up. I'm going to hide that. And you're really worried. What happens if someone finds out? What happens if my teacher finds out? What, maybe she'll fail me on the test, fail me on the paper, fail me in the class. I won't be able to graduate. I'll end up homeless on the street. Life will be all over for me as I, I mean, if anyone finds out that I cheated. Maybe some of you, maybe you told a lie and you're afraid someone's going to find out and you're carrying the, the anxiety from that or you took something you shouldn't have took or you've been overspending or, or you've been hoarding or you're addicted to something or you, you lost your temper recently but you're carrying that and the fear is if that ever gets out, if people ever find out, who knows what's going to happen? They might look down on me or reject me or judge me. So you, you have this secret sin and now that secret sin has you right? It's not really so much that you have it contained now as much as it's kind of, it kind of has a hold of you. So what do we do about that? Of that sin that we try to hide? Well, the Bible tells us again and again and again that it's always better to confess your sins than to hide them. We say this all the time, but it's always better to confess than to conceal. In Proverbs 28, it tells us this. Notice, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, right? But notice, whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So we have two different different paths here. He says, he who conceals his sin does not prosper. That word prosper is just a general term that means to advance in life. He says, you cannot advance in life. You cannot move forward in your life. If you're holding in your sin, your sin will hold you back. But if you confess your sin, notice, he says, you will find mercy. What does that mean? You will find the compassion of God. You will find forgiveness of your sin. You will find restoration and you will find peace. It's always better to confess your sin because your soul was never made to contain the poison of sin. And we kind of actually, we understand that a little bit, even on a physical, biological level, don't we? Any of you ever had food poisoning, right? Besides me, anyone? All right, Scott, you've had food poisoning, right? It was fun, wasn't it? It It's like, yeah, I I can't remember, like, I think it was like eight years ago or so, I got food poisoning, and it was kind of one of those really bad setups. Like, I was with a friend, it was a Thursday night, and uh, we went to Red Robin, and I'm like, I was so hungry, and he was hungry, and so... 
I like ordered, I'm like, what's the biggest thing in the menu? And I got like the Whiskey River barbecue bacon cheese burger, right? That big old thing. Like, and that's probably because I'm a pastor and it had whiskey barbecue sauce. I'm not sure what it was. They told me it cooks out, but I had that, I won that burger and I ate all, I ate the whole thing. I ate the fries. I ate all that stuff, you know, and I was just like, oh, so good. And I was full and I went home. I was really full. And I went home. My wife was like, how are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Something's kind of weird. And about two hours later, my body just said, I'm going to violently eject this hamburger right now, all right? And so if you've ever had food poisoning, you know it's just like, whatever it takes, that burger's coming out. And I'm like, you know, it's like unnatural. It's not, it doesn't feel good. It's like, I thought I was going to die. But of course, the point is the body knows that it's got to get that. It can't have that poison inside. It's got to get that thing out. A confession, this is true. I've been to Red Robin many times since then. I have never eaten a hamburger at Red Robin ever since that time. Especially whiskey, barbecue, whatever it was. So anyways, here's the deal. Unconfessed sin is a little like poison in the soul. And the soul knows we got to get this. We can't, if we hold on to this, it's going to fester, it's going to stew, it's going to get worse, it's going to spread. You got to get rid of it. Unconfessed sin will hold you back. It will create anxiety. It will, it will hurt your relationships. It will ruin your peace. Uh, it, it will put a wedge between you and your God. So what do you do? How do you deal with sin in your life? And we all have that at times. Well, what you do is you confess. Very simple. This is not new ideas. We talk about this a lot. But the first is this. You confess to God for, notice, for forgiveness. We confess to God for forgiveness of sin. And we get this concept in 1 John 1, 9. It says this. If we, and there's the word, if we confess, all right, then what will God do? Well, God is faithful and God is just and God will forgive us and God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in your notes, I've, I've noted for you this morning that the word confess is the Greek word homologeo, and it, and it means to speak the same, or literally, it, it, word for word, it means um, the same word, or to say the same thing. Um, in other words, the word in this context means this. It means that we say the same thing that God says about our sin. That's basically what it means to confess to God. So we come to God and we say, God, I agree with you, all right? And that's a little different than we sometimes do. Sometimes we make excuses. Sometimes we try to justify our sin. Sometimes we say, well, I couldn't help it, or the devil made me do it, or my mom made me do it, or, you know, or, or everyone else is doing it, or I know it's not that good, but did you see what he did? And so it's not any of that stuff. It's just admitting. It's admitting. It's saying the same thing God says about sin. So it's saying to God, you know what, God? I, okay, okay. I admit it. I wasn't sharing a prayer request. I was gossiping. Okay, so we just say, we say the same thing that God says. We say, we call gossip, gossip. We call adultery, adultery. That's what we do. We don't, we don't try to cover it up. We call lying, lying. We just agree with God. When we're proud, we call it what it is. We don't make excuses. We're proud, and we know how God feels about that. It means that we just say what God says. God, I'm lazy. God, I'm a workaholic. God, I'm greedy. God, I'm unforgiving. God, I, I take things that aren't mine. God, I'm a complainer. 
Right? You can do that. We're going to talk about that in the next series, about complaining. I'm not going to tell you what sermon it is. Um, God, uh, I'm a cheater. God, I'm an addict. God, I'm a pervert. Right? Here's my question. What sin in your life do you just need to stop making excuses for and just confess? Just agree with God. Just say about that thing what God says about that thing. You've been making excuses. You've been ignoring it. And God says it's time to stop doing all that. And it's time to just confess. Now, what will God do when we confess? What will he do? It says that he is faithful to forgive. You may have heard before, but that word forgive there just means to send away. I'm going to cast it off, God says. I'm sending it away, and he will cleanse us. Uh, it means to purify and to, to declare something clean. So, of course, one of the questions you might ask is, if sin's such a big deal, if sin's such a heinous thing, then, then how is it that I just, I just confess my sin and God just, oh, yeah, I'll just forgive you. I'll wink and we'll pretend it's... And well, of course, the truth is that it's not quite that simple, is it? There was some hard work. There was some heavy lifting that had to be done in order for there to be a connection between confessing and forgiveness. That work was done by Christ on the cross. It tells us in 2 Corinthians, it says this, for our sake, now, when he's talking about our sake, he's saying because of our sinful condition, because of the, the sin that we commit, For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was born sinless. He lived a perfect sinless life. But at the end of his life, the Bible says that he went to a cross and he took all of your sins and all of mine and he took them upon himself and he became sin for us. So he made an exchange. He became sin for us, a him who knew no sin, so that, notice, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we talk about the righteousness of God, we mean that we have a right standing. We have a right relationship. When God looks at us, he doesn't focus on our sin and our issues and our problems. What he sees is kind of a, the picture in the Bible is like a robe of righteousness. And God's not dumb. He knows we didn't make that ourselves. He knows that, that it came from Jesus and he's good with that. And so we're robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of what God has done for us, what Jesus did on the cross. See, when I confess, God forgives and God cleanses. And the result is the righteousness of God. So we confess to receive forgiveness of our sins from God. So can I just tell you that that's the easy part of all this? That's super simple because you can do that anytime, anywhere, in the privacy of your own heart. You might have done it this morning before you came to church. You might have, you might have sinned on the way to church this morning. Now, I don't know, you know, somehow you did that. You were walking in the door and you just really quick, you know, ask God for forgiveness. You might be, I don't know, sinning in your head right now and, you know, you could just like, when's he going to be done? And you could just confess to God right now. I mean, that, the nice thing about that is you can just do that in the privacy of your own heart, wherever you are. But there's another way the Bible says that we confess. And this is a little bit uh, uncomfortable for us, and that is we confess to people for healing. So we confess to God for forgiveness, but we confess to people. Ah, this gets a little more uh, disconcerting here, doesn't it? For, for, for healing. We get this idea in James 5. It says this. Listen to these words. Therefore, confess your sins. All right? He doesn't say confess your sins to God. The assumption is we already did that. No, no, but you're not done. Well, I confess to God. I'm good with God. Good for you. You're not done. Confess your sins to, notice, to each other. Now he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. All right? Confess your sins. Glad you did it to God. Good for you. Gold star. You're not done. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. 
so that you may be healed. Now that word confess is a little different than in 1 John 1, 9. It has a little different flair to it. It means uh, to agree, but it also means to promise and to profess openly. So here's the idea, I think, behind this word. If you put it all together, it means this. When we confess, in, in, as it says in James, not only am I agreeing with God about my sin, all right, but I'm going to openly admit it to other mature believers who will also agree with God about my sin. You see where that's... So I'm not saying, and we all have friends like this, he's not saying confess to friends who will be like, oh, forget about it. Oh, I did that too. Oh, I did it worse than you. Oh, everybody. Oh, no, no. That's not what he's saying. He's saying confess it to people go, ah, yeah. I'm going to have to take God's side on this one. <laughs> that was gossip. That was anger. You're just greedy. You're lustful. What's your problem, okay? So here's the deal. It means that we... Now, these are people that are mature believers, so it means they're, they're safe. It means they're mature. They're not going to broadcast. They're not going to be like, I haven't put anything on Facebook in five days, but I got something now. Okay, that's not what... These are people who you can trust, people who are safe. But people, again, get this. It's not people who are going to just gloss over and go, ah, just forget about it. That's the people who are going to help you. They're going, to, they're going to be like, you know what, that is sin. And they may admit they've done it before, but they're not going to gloss over it, right? They're going to agree with you and agree with God. Now, I hope that all of you have somebody, or I would say uh, one person is never enough. I hope you have people in your life that you have a relationship like with this. And, and for those of you, I just say part of the reason we have grow groups Part of the reason we have girl groups in this church is because we want to create places for that to happen. Now, I know sometimes people say, uh, I'm, I'm in a girl group. I can't even imagine, like, nobody in my girl groups confesses their sin. And I would just say to you, well, then, you know, just but if you do it this week, then, you know, that will start happening in your group. Um, you, somebody at some point has to begin to make that happen. But grow groups are a place where we're trying to hopefully see some relationships built that are safe with people who agree with you and will agree with God about your sin and with whom you have meaningful relationships and you can confess. Now, and I'll just tell you this. I have been a pastor for about 27 years and I have had countless, countless people confess uh, their sins to me over the years. And, and um, when I first became a pastor, I have to admit, it was overwhelming and shocking at times because uh, I could not believe some of the things that I would hear. Like I can remember like after, uh, after church, you know, people would come up and say, Pastor, I just gotta, I gotta confess. And, and I'd like have to sit down, you know. I'd be like, people would be like, okay, so I gotta tell you this. And I'd have people confess to me, um, you know, oh, Pastor, I just really have lustful feelings for someone. Like, and I said this in the other services, I, I'm not gonna make any eye contact. I was really worried like when I read this, people would be like, is he looking at me when he's saying that? Is the pastor looking at me? But I'd have people say, like, I had a guy confess one time, I, I'm pastor, I'm just having really lustful feelings for, and, and then I was like, for another woman in the room. And then I always just be like, oh, I didn't, see, I don't need to know all of that, right? I didn't even know, like, but, but, but he wanted to confess. Like, I've had people confess their addiction to porn. I've had people confess that they've been in adulterous relationships. I've had several people over the years confess that they were actively embezzling funds from where they worked, and 
then God had convicted them about that. Now they're afraid they were going to be convicted um, as well. And, you know, trying to work that through. I've had people confess cheating in school, cheating on tests, spending too much. Uh, they've confessed greed. I've had people confess that they had, uh, had abortions. I've had people confess that they eat too much or that they don't eat enough. Uh, people who, can, who confess they, that they work too much. Some confess they didn't work enough. Um, some who were addicted to alcohol, addicted to illegal drugs, addicted to prescriptions, addicted to caffeine, yeah, addicted to romance novels, truth. You know, I was like, what? Is that a, like uh, addicted to TV? I've had people confess they actually like cats. I'm not sure <laughs> how to deal with that. But, you know, whenever someone tells me, on all seriousness, okay, when someone says to me, Pastor, I'm about to confess a sin to you that I've never told anyone. Here's, here's the one thing I've learned. Okay, that person is about to experience a breakthrough in the power of God. Okay, because what James says here is that when we will do that, we can experience healing. And that word healing is a reference to spiritual healing, to being restored from a state of sin and a state of condemnation to a state of, of, of righteousness and being right with God. We experience a healing in our life. Sometimes it's spiritual and sometimes it's emotional. And James even says, sometimes it's physical. Sometimes we are physically ill because of the sin in our life that we've been concealing. And when we can God can use that to bring healing into our life. That doesn't mean we're always going to be perfect or we're never going to sin again, but we begin to experience a greater connection and intimacy with God the Father. Now, if you just think about it for a moment, if you just think about the, the process of confessing your sin out loud to someone, right? So for some of you, you've never done this. Um, you've just never, you, you're even here today and you're thinking about something and you're carrying it and you can't even imagine uh, sharing that with somebody. But let me just tell you a few things about confessing your sin to people. There's something about, isn't this true? There's something about like saying the words out loud. There's something about, it's one thing when you just confess to God quietly, but when you say the words out loud, I am a liar. I am a gossip. I have an addiction to whatever. There's something powerful, isn't there? about saying those words out loud as we begin to let what we know is true inside begin to work its way out. When we do that with other people, we are, what we are doing is we are entering into finally a real gospel community relationship with people. I say that because God has called us to live a, a, the gospel out in our relationships. And how many of us can say that we're really doing that? How many of us have relationships with people and those relationships are quite frankly fake? Because the people in our lives, they don't know what we're really struggling with. They have no idea the thing that wakes us up in the middle of the night. Now think about that. If, if we're not telling people we're struggling with, how can they pray for us? Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe the, the thing that you're struggling with more than anything and the thing you need God's help from more than anything, there isn't anybody in this world that's actually praying about that. How sad is it that you are carrying that burden all alone? How sad is it that you don't have friends that you can just say that to and who, who can minister the grace of God to you and who can reach over and, and grab your shoulder and say, well, well, that's sin and that's not great, but I'm not going to cast a stone at you because I know what that's like. We're all sinners, but I am going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you next week when I see you, how are you doing? When I ask you how you're doing, how you're doing, you know what I mean, right? 
So we're just going to understand. We're, we're going to get down to some serious stuff. And I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going uh, to be there for you. See, Satan says, don't tell anyone. They'll judge you. They'll reject you. They'll talk about you. God says there is healing in confessing to others. So we confess to God of forgiveness. We confess to people for healing. Now, here's the danger, that we could get in kind of a cycle, all right, where we were like, I'm tempted, and I sin, I sin, I confess to God, I confess to people, all right, then I go back and I sin, and I confess, and I confess, and I sin, and it's just pretty soon to say, how do we break that? Is it just like, that's the way it's going to be, or is there a way to break that cycle? And that's my last point, and we'll do this quick, but there's a third thing we confess, and that is, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but we need to confess that God is faithful. We confess that God is faithful. And we get this idea from 1 Corinthians 10 where the writer says this, no temptation, watch this, this is is so important. No temptation has overtaken you. No temptation have you ever experienced in your life that is not common to other people, all right? So that's pretty powerful. You're, You're like, but no one else knows what this is like, but you have no idea what it's like. And the writer says, not true, okay? Every temptation you ever face, lots of people know what that's like. And there's what he says. And this is so important. He says, and God is what? Faithful, all right? And God is faithful. Now, what does that mean that God is faithful? And he will not let you, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. God is faithful. And with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape. Because God is faithful, you will be able to endure it. I don't know if you've ever faced a temptation to sin and felt like, what's the use? Have you ever felt like, I could fight it, but what's the use? Because I'm eventually going to give in. I'm, I'm angry, I'm going to count to 10, but why even bother? Because I'm going to get to 10, and then when I get to 10, I'm going to say the thing that I know I shouldn't say. But I could count to 100, and it won't matter, because I'm still going to get angry. I could count to 1,000, and it doesn't matter. When I'm done counting to 1,000, I'm going to eventually give in, and I'm going to say that thing, I'm going to vent my anger, I'm going to gossip, I'm going to buy that thing, and have that lustful thought or whatever it is. Have you ever faced a temptation and just felt helpless? Like there's no way to escape. Like I can put it off for a minute or I can put it off for 10 minutes or I can put it off for for a day, but that temptation's coming back to me tomorrow and what's the use? I can never really totally fight that thing and have victory. Here's what he says. Here's what you have to understand. Here's what you remember. God is faithful. God is faithful. God will always provide a way out of your temptation. God will always provide a way out because God is faithful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is faithful? Even when the temptation is powerful, you always have a choice. That's what Paul is saying here. You are not a victim. You are not a puppet. You do not have to give in. This is not an inevitable thing because God is faithful. The reason you can have victory is not because you're such a strong person. The reason you can have victory is because God is faithful. And God is faithful powerful. And God will always give you the grace because he is faithful. And God will always give you strength because he is faithful. And God will always give you an escape route. God will always give you a window. God will always give you a doggy door. He'll give you some way to get out of that temptation. You are not trapped. You are not a victim. Sin is not inevitable. Because God, can you believe this? God is, God is what? Faithful. So you say that. 
When you're tempted, I would encourage you to just say it out loud so that God hears it. You say, well, God can hear me anyway. So, but God can hear it, and the demons can hear it, and the devil can hear it, and the person sitting next to you who thinks, you know, what's happening with them can hear it. And God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. When you confess that in faith and trust God, you are not trapped. You are not a victim. You can always pray. You can always stop and talk to God. You have choices. You can find your Bible and start reading it. You have a choice. You can call a friend. You can call someone and say, I'm being tempted. I'm feeling overwhelmed. But God is faithful. And I think today he's going to be faithful to you. Can you stop what you're doing and get over here so we can have some time together? Or you can, here's a, here, you're, you're feeling tempted to say God is faithful and turn off the computer, turn off the phone, turn off the internet thing, right? Did you know those things come with plugs? You can unplug that sucker. You can turn it off. You can, you can change your location. Get up out of the chair and walk away. You can put the credit card away. You can put the fork down. You can hold your tongue. You can count to 100. You can pull off the road, you know? You don't have to press send right away. You can wait for 24 hours. You can walk away. You're not a victim. You have a choice. God gives you a way out, a way to freedom. And here's what I've discovered. Sometimes, sometimes that way out is not always intuitive. It's not. And again, this is why living uh, in community with other wise believers is so helpful. Because over the years, when I felt tempted, and I've shared that with people, sometimes people come up with some great ideas. It's not even really rocket science. But it really works. Like, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Um, I, 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 Home Depot, Lowe's, I'm an addict, you know. Hi, my name is Bob. And I'm addicted to home improvement stores. So, and here's what I would do. For years, I'd have like, I, we live in this house that was built in 1960, and there's always something to fix in that house. And so, you know, a lot of times on my day off, I'll have this list of like, okay, I need to do this project or paint this or fix this or whatever. And a lot of times I just need to figure it out. So I'll just, I'll go to Home Depot, go to Lowe's, and I'll just walk down the aisles. Now, granted, I only needed to go down the plumbing aisle, but I'm there anyway. So I'm just going to walk down there every aisle and, you know, the lawnmower aisle. And, you know, and so I'm kind of walking through. And then this is what would always happen to me. I'd end up in the process of pricing out the project and stuff. I'd end up buying a bunch of stuff that wasn't part of the project that I didn't even go there for. I just confess. I just have that problem. It's shiny. It's cool. You start it. It sounds good. It takes gasoline. It's really cool. And I would buy stuff. I'd get in my car, I'd put that stuff in, and then I'd realize I bought all this stuff that I don't need for the project. And now I don't actually have any money for the project that I went there for in the first place, right? So I'm telling this to a friend one time. I'm like, I know it sounds kind of silly, but I think I have a problem. I don't know if there's like a, 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 a demon at Home Depot or what the deal is, but every time I go there, and he said, I can't believe how dense you are. Just you know, this really simple solution. He's like, next time you go there because you're pricing out a project, just don't take any money. Leave your credit card at home, leave your money at home. And I remember thinking like, can you do that? <laughs> Will they let you in? Will they be like, no, you can't come in here. You don't have any money. He's like, yeah, just leave all your money at home. And I'm like, but what if there's a good deal? But what if, they, you know, what if, what if something's on sale? He's like, just, I don't, leave your money at home. Right? And God provided a way after that guy. I got to tell you, I go to Home Depot. I go with all my money now. It's pretty good. It's kind of hard. All right. I've thought about shoplifting again, but I'm still not doing that. So I, all right. But here's the deal. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God loves you. Jesus died for you. 
The Holy Spirit lives within you. The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. And that power is available to you. And he will always give you a way out. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe that God is faithful. And if you believe that and you're tempted and you confess, God will be there for you. God is faithful. God can be trusted. We confess to God for the forgiveness of our sin. We confess to people so that we may be healed. And we confess that God is faithful.